Uh, my name is Daniel Green. I am the youth director alongside my wife, Erin. Um, I preached here before, so I'm not going to do a lengthy introduction, but um, I am thankful to have the opportunity to preach in front of you guys again. Um, so before I say too much, I would like to start with some prayer, because I need it, um, and we all do, so let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for the opportunity, just the fact that we are all here, bring glory to your name. You are, you are so worthy uh, of all of our praise, of all of our affection. I pray that this time would just be a time that is so glorifying to you and that your spirit would work through every single one of us. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is actually what we are doing uh, this year. I think we've actually done a couple years in a row now, so, but if you missed last year and the year before that, then hey, then you get it again this year, so you're welcome. Um, but O Come, O Come, uh, Emmanuel is, and let me just say before I get started, um, this sermon might be a bit of a fire hose of information. I'm sorry, you know, um, it, it, it's a lot, and just kind of Grab some water and a donut and, and prepare yourself because this might be more than an hour. I'd, we'll find out. Um, but anyway, so Okomo Come Emmanuel uh, is actually an adaptation from what is called the uh, O Antiphons or the Great Advent Antiphons, um, which were actually written in the 6th century. So this is an old thing. This is a, you know, a call and response. Antiphon literally means anti, opposite, phon, voice, opposite voice. So it's a call and response. And this is what they did back in the 6th century during evening prayer. They would, um, you know, one person would say the beginning part of the antiphon, and then the congregants would respond with the refrain. The refrain being, rejoice, rejoice. Um, and so, this is kind of what we're, we're, we're going through today. Um, but basically, the, the O antiphons, uh, or antiphons, were uh, all about the, the coming of Christ. And there were seven in total. This is the fire hose I'm talking about. Uh, there were seven in total, and uh, basically you would sing one, or they would recite one every day leading up to Christmas Eve. And so they would do this together as a church. Today, we're only going to go through five of the seven, so I was gracious and merciful to you. Um, not really, actually. The, the, the modern adaptation of it, you know, it was originally went into Latin in like the ninth century, and then in the 1800s, it went into English. And it's really only five of the seven, and you probably won't hear the other two when you hear this song, um, and you're, sometimes you don't even hear all five, but I'm giving you all five, so you're welcome. Um, but basically, um, we're just going to look at these and see how they all point to a greater theme throughout Scripture and throughout this. Um, so let's jump into the very first stanza, and I think it's going to reveal to us our first theme um, and the main theme. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. So the song starts off with this, O come, O come, right? And this is, this is beautiful because it immediately speaks to the theme that is the theme of this entire message and perhaps our entire lives is a, a, a desperate plea, a desperate plea for, for Jesus. O come, O come. We desperately, we, we seek his presence because we live 
in a broken world. I think it's pretty easy for us to see this, especially nowadays in the, in the 21st century and, and even more so in the last couple of years. I mean, the world is broken. We see um, just an immense amount of mental health issues. We, we, we see a ton of corruption in what seems like every facet of the world. There's a ton of animosity. There's a ton of strife. There's a, a ton of hatred in the world. And so it makes sense for us to, to sing this um, and to, to call out to, to, to Jesus. And I think all of us can relate to this idea of, of brokenness in our own lives. Um, and, and you can think for it yourself. Uh, but whether it's your own mental health problems or you know, loss of a family member, a friend, or a broken relationship, or loss of a job, loss of finances, what, whatever it is, uh, I, I think we can all relate to this idea of, oh, come, somebody come help me, somebody come rescue me, Some, somebody come and, and change the, the, the dynamic, the status quo, that whatever is going on in my life, I want someone to, to come and, and to help me. Um, and this, this struggle is not unique to us. This, is, this has been going on ever since the time of Adam and Eve, with the initial fall of man, this this, this oh come occurred because of that initial curse to humanity. Humanity now struggles because of that moment where childbearing, work, um, the relationship between man and woman, and eventually even our lives, which result in death, are all cursed. And we experience this every day, um, all of us. This is uh, what it talks about in, in Romans 8, 22 through 23. Um, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait for eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So the whole world is groaning. I mean, not just us, literally everything, because of the fall. And so we all have this plea. We all have this calling of, oh, come, oh, come, Somebody, something, help me. Um, thankfully, uh, this song uh, kind of reveals to us who we should be calling for. Um, and it is Emmanuel. And this is something we see in the very first prophecy that was already read for us. Uh, therefore, it says in Isaiah 7:14, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Uh, we see this again affirmed in, in Matthew 1, 20-23. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So God with us. This is a spoiler, right? I was going to ask you what does Emmanuel mean, but it's already given to you. But this is interesting, right? Um, because if, you know, you have this idea of, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. So you're pleading for God with us. It seems kind of strange, right? I mean, if God is with us, then why are we pleading? If you were right next to me, I would not say, hey, come here. 
please, you know, I need you in my presence. I need, you know, I need you in my life. You're already here. So it's a bit odd, right? But this is, this is actually very common throughout Scripture. Uh, and both Daniel, Espy, and uh, Stephen addressed this uh, the past couple of weeks. It's this idea called the already but not yet. Already, God is with us. In fact, God is omnipresent, so he's everywhere. So you can't exactly escape God. Um, and, and he's been with us since all of creation. We see God's presence in the garden with Adam and Eve. We see him in the midst of the, the, you know, everything that we see throughout history with it, um, or throughout the Old Testament with the history of Israel. He's consistently with them, right? He's with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and he, you know, he's with the Israelites as they're delivered from Egypt, and he's with them uh, as, as they're wandering through the wilderness and as he brings them into the promised land. And God is with them over and over and over again. And he sends prophet after prophet after prophet to kind of communicate to them and say, hey, I'm with you, I'm talking to you, I'm communicating with you. Isaiah himself, who gave this very prophecy of Emmanuel, was communicating on God's behalf as a prophet. And so God, you know, is already with us. He's already come. And yet, um, it's pretty easy, I think, for, for us to see why why it feels like sometimes God's not with us, right? Um, you know, we, we look around at the world and see the brokenness and the corruption, and we perhaps, uh, you know, we, we can't even see him. We can't even feel him. There, 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 we can't even, like, there, there's all these senses. We, we, it seems as if perhaps God is not here. God is not among us. And so sometimes we understand where unbelievers come from when they say, I don't, I don't believe in God. Well, yeah, it's not super obvious to, to the world and, and to, the, to the human eye that, that God is with us. And so this is that pull, this is that tension, this is that dynamic, and this is that already but not yet. And we see this in, in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Paul addresses this idea. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then... I shall know know fully, even as I have been fully known. So, like seeing God and experiencing God, it's kind of like looking at you know a, a spoon or something in in a dimly lit room or something where where you, you see it, uh, but it's it's not fully there and it's kind of confusing and and you're just missing out on some of it, right? You don't have the full picture of of, of God and and His presence, and so this is what we what we struggle with. Um, and this is why we plead for Jesus. But this song is, is not just doom and gloom and, oh, where's God? I, 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 I wish he was here. You know, it's, it's about rejoicing. Um, so the question is, why should we rejoice? And the reality is because God has come, right? He is here, and, and he will come again. And he's here for us in the midst of our brokenness. Um, and so we're going to look at this. We're going to take this idea, um, and, and we're going to kind of pull it out throughout the, the rest of this song and the rest of Scripture. Uh, and so one final kind of idea before we transition into that. Um, we take solace in knowing that he will come again, right? And this is the ultimate kind of thing that people think about with O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. They either think about the first advent or the second advent. Um, let's go ahead and just read Revelation 21, 1 through 5. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is, this is amazing. Like this is, this is our destiny. And so we think about all these things, and we're going we're gonna to analyze all the different stanzas uh, in, in, with respect to this idea that you know, we should be pleading for God, but also that we should be rejoicing in the fact that he has come, he is here now with us, and he will come again. So let's jump back into stanza one um, and kind of take a look at that with this in mind. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee. So we already discussed this idea of, of Emmanuel, um, God with us, and so we're not going to go super into depth into that. Um, but what we're seeing in this is, is captivity, right? These, these kind of key words of uh, ransom, slavery, captivity, exile, all these ideas are, are actually very, uh, very important to the Israelite history. If, if you studied it a, a little, then you understand that for much of Israel's history, they have been spending it in either slavery, war, exile. So for them, this is, this is extremely important. And, you know, this, we see it with um, the, the Egyptians when, you know, Abraham actually is considered to have been uh, a slave to the Egyptians in the sense of what happened with Ishmael. I'm not going to go into detail with that. But, you know, throughout the Egyptians and then their exile, exiled in Egypt, and they're finally brought out of Egypt, but they're still in exile through the wilderness, and then even as they make it to the promised land, it's not without war. They're continuously in war, and then sometimes they're, you know, cast out from their land, and then we, there's like this great series of exile and slavery and captivity for the Israelites. You know, they go through a series of the Assyrians coming in, and then the Babylonians, and the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans, consistently for the Israelite nation. This is a problem, captivity, but that is not the main problem for Israel, right? And it's, it's no wonder that, that when Jesus came the first time, the first advent, they were really hoping for someone like a king or a warrior, an earthly king that comes and, and destroys all the nations and, and sets up Israel and, and he becomes their, their king and he rules and reigns and everything's great. But that's not what Jesus did because that's not the main problem with Israel. The main problem with Israel is their slavery to sin. Not their slavery to mankind. And the same is, is, is true for us. Um, and on an on a even deeper level than this idea, right, than, than slavery to sin, it, it is ultimately a, a failure to trust God. Right? We see this we see this slavery play out with, with um, Adam and Eve, where instead of trusting that God's plans were, were good for them, 
they said, hmm, maybe, maybe the devil's right. Maybe, maybe, God, maybe God isn't trustworthy. Maybe, um, maybe we should eat this fruit. Maybe his plans for us aren't actually good. And so they, they go down that path. And then Israel does this as well. Continually, God you know, tries to, to guide them and to, and to give them commands and give them promises. And then they're like, I don't know. I don't know if I believe that, you know. I don't know if I trust God. I don't know if I trust that what he said is, is good for me and his plan is good for me and his promises are true. And that's something that I can lean on. Instead, they're like, oh, uh, let's, let's trust in this piece of wood or let's trust in this piece of gold and let's trust in the other nations to come and help us instead of trusting in God. This is continually an issue for them throughout all of their history. And this is something that we struggle with uh, as well. We are all ultimately, all of humanity is a, is a slave to sin. And that's why we can relate to this stanza, because this is the greater problem for each of us. And this is something that we all kind of have to, to look at as, as individuals, but also we think about as the world, as, as slavery to that, a failure to trust God, a failure to, to think when, you know, if God says, hey, don't do this, we say, hey, I trust you. I'm not going to do that. But of course, we struggle with this. Over and over again, we struggle to, to trust that he's actually going to provide, he's actually going to care for us. And so we go throughout life what feels like slavery to, to sin. Um, and, and this is why we plead, right? Because humanity is enslaved to sin. But the reality is, we as Christians actually have reason to rejoice because we are actually not slaves to sin. Um, Emmanuel came and freed us from that slavery to sin. So you and I are slaves no more. And this is a beautiful thing. Humanity still is enslaved to sin, but we are free from that. He has already paid our ransom, as it's talking about in this song. He freed us. This is what it's talking about in 1 Peter 1, 18-20. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. You were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. So when we sing this, you know, ransom captive Israel, we have been ransomed. The price has already been paid by Christ. So in a sense, done. We're good. But also, <laughs> in another sense, we still fail to trust God. We still struggle with sin. So <clears throat> what is going on here? Why is this happening? If you're freed from it, then what's going on? Well, this is the already but not yet, Right? This is part of the struggle already. This is true already. You are free from sin, and yet you will continue to struggle for the rest of your life with trusting in God. But we have another reason to rejoice. Again, going through each of these, he is here to help us fight sin now. He has already come to free us from it, but he's also here to help us in the moment. Um, this is what it says in John 14, 15 through 18. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. 
whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So, obviously, if we're freed from sin, but Jesus is saying you need a helper, then we need a helper. And this is, this is something that you know, each of us have to, to um, recognize as, as we struggle through trusting God, as we struggle through fighting sin. We have to actually like, lean on him and, and allow his spirit to, to help us and to, and to lead us out of their, you know, our struggles with jealousy and bitterness and discontentment, selfishness, pride, whatever it is that you are struggling with in your battle against sin. God will help you in that. Thankfully, though, we have another reason to rejoice because one day this battle will end. The struggle that we face now will one day be no more. Um, He will end sin for all time. This is what we read earlier in Revelation. This is what if you just read a lot of prophecies and a lot of Revelation, you'll see this over and over and over again. We rejoice because he will end sin for all time, and there will be a no more pain, no more crying, no more tears. All of that will be gone because Christ will come again. And that is absolutely something to rejoice in. But we have more reasons than that. So let's look at stanza two, and it's going to give us a little bit more information. O come thou rod of Jesse, free. This is, we sing it weirdly, right? O come thou rod of Jesse, free. Thine own from Satan's tyranny. That's, that's not really how you would read it. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save, and give them victory over the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Um, anyone know what the rod of Jesse is? Okay, maybe a half hand, or I don't know what that was. Um, so this is, this, is a, this is why I think it's valuable that we, we kind of look at songs, um, because I can't tell you how many times I've sung this song and just be like, Rod of Jesse, you know, and, and meanwhile no, having no idea what that actually meant. Um, so let's go ahead and look at Isaiah 11.1 uh, and see if we can have an understanding of what this Rod of Jesse is all about. Isaiah 11.1, there shall come forth a shoot. Wow, I don't have the ESV, that's fine. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Do you also have the ESV? We all have the ESV. Basically, if you have the King James Version, it's going to talk about the rod of Jesse. But this is helpful, because now you have an actual idea of what it's talking about. In the KJV, you might be a little bit lost. Um, Basically, we see these elements of what? A tree. Perhaps a family tree. Jesse being the, the roots, and we see there's a parallel here. There's the stump, and then the roots, and then there's the shoot, and then there's the branch. So at the roots, at the stump, is Jesse, and from Jesse will come a branch, a son, a descendant from Jesse. Now, who do we know to be the son of Jesse? Or you may know is David. Yeah, very good. Now, what's weird about this um, is that this prophecy was written 300 years after David was even reigning. So what is this talking about? 
It, it can't be talking about David. But Isaiah is very intentional in this, or should I say God is very intentional in this. Um, there's a connection being drawn between uh, David and Jesus. If you know, Jesus is actually the son of David. So this family tree that develops, Jesus is still part of that family tree because he is the son of David. And there's a lot of connections. You could, you'll, you'll see this all throughout Scripture that, that David and Jesus are connected. You know, David is often considered the prototype of Jesus, meaning he is like the lesser version, but still very like Jesus. David is considered uh, a man after God's own heart. A lot of the Psalms that, that David wrote are applications to himself, but even more so applications to Jesus. They're prophetic words of Jesus. So there's a ton of connections between David and Jesus. Um, and so let's look at that connection. What are some roles and responsibilities, and I'm going to let you shout them out, that David and Jesus have in common? Go. King. Perfect. Any else? Shepherd. Awesome. Maybe one more. Yeah. Hey, wow. Isn't that funny? Um, yeah, so there, there, there's, there's, that's my wife. Um, there's, there's three, there's three kind of. Um, I'm actually going to link warrior and king to just warrior king because that's pretty true of, of David, and we see this idea all the time of warrior king. Um, so I'm going to link those two, and I'm going to link shepherd. Um, so we think about that in the context of this stanza, right? And you can bring it back up, I guess. I don't know, that might be too hard. I'm not sure how that works. Um, but basically, uh, there's, this, there's this theme of, of vulnerability, right? We need to be um, freed. We need to be rescued. We need to be delivered. We need to be protected like a sheep. A sheep, perhaps, that is caught in the snare. A sheep that is caught between the clenched jaw of a wolf. Or perhaps a sheep that has fallen into a pit. Or maybe you are a citizen and you need your great warrior king to rescue you from the enemy that is coming. Or perhaps you have been captured and you need the warrior king to come and rescue you. Either way, this theme that is here in this stanza is all connecting David and Jesus as a protector. And this is, this is why, we, why we plead. Because we need protection. We are, we are vulnerable. We are not powerful people. I mean, you saw how we struggled with COVID. That's like one disease out of like millions probably. I don't know. Um, all the nurses and doctors can probably speak to that. But obviously, we're very vulnerable people. We, we can't even control our own death, right? We can't prevent that. And for us as Christians, can we, can, we, can we stop Satan? Do we have the power within ourselves to, to stop what Satan can do? No. We can't prevent our own deaths. We can't prevent the dark forces that work against us on our own. We, we, we are truly a vulnerable people. We can't escape hell. We can't do any of these things. And so we need a protector. We need a savior. And this is why we rejoice, right? Because Jesus, Jesus is that. 
He represents all these things that, that we need. Jesus has defeated Satan. Jesus has defeated death. He has rescued us from hell. Just like a warrior, just like a, a king, just like a shepherd would do. Let's read Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. This is what it says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those through, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is what Jesus has already accomplished. He has come as our protector and our savior. So done, right? Not quite. Again, we, we, we struggle with the dark forces. We struggle to, against Satan. And one day we're going to die. Right? That's still a reality for us, even though that is also true. And so this is why we must rejoice knowing that Jesus continues to protect us today from the enemy and from the perils of this life. And this is done by his spirit. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. I'll give you the right one. Um, no temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. With the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Amen? God has given us a way. God has provided um, a rescue in the midst of our struggle, in the midst of our battle today. Even though he has already defeated Satan, we are in the not yet phase, <laughs> but also in the already phase. Um, Satan's power is not untethered and unbound. So you and I have no reason to fear. We don't have to fear Satan. We don't have to fear the dark forces because God is still in control in the midst of them. So we don't need to worry about job loss or, or loss of health, loss of approval, everything that you guys kind of, in your own experiences, in your own ways, experience um, the dark forces and, and are, 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 are just entrenched in fear and anxiety and everything else. You have no reason to fear because God is here and helping you in the here and the now. Um, I think Psalm 23 is always... A helpful psalm when thinking about this. Verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That is, that is beautiful. So that in the midst of all of your, your struggles here and now and today, you have no need to worry. And it's not that those things will never happen, right? Because they do, and I'm sure we've all experienced this to, to certain degrees. Whatever, whatever the, the loss, whatever the fear, whatever the dark forces are, uh, whatever the temptation to, to sin and whatever else is, it's not that those things will not happen, right? But it's the fact that God is in control in the midst of them, and they will never overtake you because God is in control. And so even if they happen, you're like, well, well I don't need to worry because God is still here in the midst of it. God is still sovereign. He is still the king. He is still the good shepherd in the midst of everything that I'm going through. So for us, there is no reason to worry. There is no reason to fear. 
thankfully, one day, Satan will be completely defeated. He will be completely destroyed. One day there will be no more death. And this is what it says in Revelation 19, 19 through 21. He will defeat Satan. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown away into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. And all the, yeah, yikes, right? That's graphic. But also good news, believe it or not, for you and me, because this is describing the beast, the devil, all of the dark forces that work today still will one day be completely and totally defeated. This is a prophecy of what will come. And so we rejoice knowing that one day he will fully save us from Satan and the dark forces. This is something we hope for and we hope in. Let's go ahead and, and look at the next stanza uh, for more reasons to rejoice. O come now, day spring from on high, and cheer us by thy drawing nigh. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night, and death's dark shadows put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. So what's the problem here? Why should we be pleading according to this stanza? Well, themes of darkness, right? And it's not hard for us to see this as a, as a reality in our world today. I mean, it is oftentimes a pretty dark place, right? Just a, a quick stat for you guys, one that is heartbreaking. Suicide is the second leading cause of, of death for those aged 10 to 35. That's pretty dark. Mental health is, is, is skyrocketing. Mental health issues, should I say, is skyrocketing. A lot of people are, are, are struggling with depression, anxiety, different phobias. Um, I think that is the true pandemic uh, of our time. I, I hear way more stories about people struggling with mental health than they are struggling with COVID. I'm not speaking you know, to anything politically or whatever, but I'm just saying this is a reality. It is a broken world, as I've already kind of discussed. Um, and we see it with, again, you know, there's corruption, there's, there's, there's been so many issues in this, in this past couple of years that uh, it's, it's easy to see that there is darkness in the world. But that, that's not really even like the main issue. The main issue in the world in terms of darkness is spiritual darkness. The main issue is that the world does not know God. Yes, that there is darkness and, and, and that is a problem. Um, but more so, it's really just a byproduct of the spiritual darkness. And, and, and this, is, this, is, this should be our primary concern for, for the world. Um, and, and, and for us, is that spiritual darkness would be no more. Um, and the beautiful thing is, as we've been seeing so far, is we plead for Jesus, and Jesus is the solution to this spiritual darkness. Because Jesus is the light. This is what it's talking about, our, our day spring. Does anyone know what um, day spring is? You can shout it out. My wife knew. Did, did you guys know? I don't think I knew uh, before I looked into this. So 
don't feel badly, but also I feel badly, so maybe you should too. Um, because how many times have we sung this song where it's like, day spring, and then we don't actually know what day spring is. Maybe you did. Maybe I'm the only one here. Um, but this is something that, um, you know, as, as Aaron mentioned, um, means sunrise. And so this is, this is the description of, of Jesus. I love that. <laughs> the fact that Jesus is described as the day spring, not just in this song, uh, but also we see it in Luke 1, 78 to 79. Through the tender, oh, KJV. If you read it in ESV, it's not going to say day spring, so sorry. Um, Through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Yo, that's like, sorry, Um, word word for word. I mean, there's so much of this stanza that they just are like, take it out of KJV. I'm going to put that in this song, which is why I love this song. Because if, you, if you've noticed, every, every stanza is built off of prophecy. Um, and this one is, is very close to exactly what we see. Uh, and so Zechariah in this is, is, is talking. This is his, kind of his song or his prophecy about his son and the fact that he's preparing a way for the day spring. So we know that Jesus is that day spring for humanity. He is the light. And Jesus affirms this about himself. He says in John 8, 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus is the light. He is the solution to the darkness that we face in the world. His very essence, his very presence, him himself is the light. Um, and I just, you know, I just love this idea because, like, God, if we're going to turn around John 3.16 or whatever, God so loved the world that he gave his only son the light that whoever shall believe in him shall not perish, shall not experience spiritual darkness. They will have the light, and that is Jesus. So we rejoice because Jesus has already come. This prophecy has already been fulfilled. The day spring came and was light to the world and still is. He continues to be the light today, and this is why we rejoice. Just because Jesus ascended does not mean that the light is all of a sudden gone. He continues to be the light for us in the midst of our our struggles. But that does not mean um, that the darkness is gone, right? Even though Jesus came, the darkness is still here. And this is something that we struggle with. Um, and this, this manifests itself in a lot of different ways for different people. For us as Christians, we actually don't have spiritual darkness in the same way where there's a lot of things that just actually are not true anymore because of what Christ has done for you and me. We do not experience spiritual darkness. We know God, so we're in the light because of Jesus. The world is in spiritual darkness. And until we, sh- we shine that light of Jesus within ourselves to the world, then they aren't going to know that light. And so this is part of our mission. This is part of our call. But we, as Christians, still face the byproducts of spiritual darkness that is still in the world. And the fact that, you know, the dark forces are still working in the world. And this can manifest itself in in a lot of different ways. Some of you, again, this idea of you might be consumed 
by fear, stress, anxiety. Um, some of you might be addicted to something. That, that is darkness. Mental health, whatever it is. There's a lot of ways in which each of us uh, experience darkness in our own lives. Um, just as I like a very not super deep testimony, this past week in preparation for um, this message, I was just so stressed, um, which I think I've said that before from the pulpit. But, um, you know, I was, I, was, I, was, I was really stressed. And it's so silly, right? Because, and this is just the, this is part of the curse. This is part of the struggle. Because I was literally in the midst of writing this. And I was like so stressed out of my mind trying to write all this out and trying to figure out like, how am I going to explain this idea, blah, blah, blah. And um, I was like, well, this is ironic, I guess, because how true this is for me, that I was literally struggling with, with darkness in my own way, of just immense stress. And, you know, if you were hanging out with me during that this past week, then you probably know that. You probably, I wasn't um, the most gracious at times or whatever. Um, but this is something that we all struggle with. But Jesus can be the light in the midst of that. But what does that look like? How, how, how do we experience the light today? Well, if Jesus is the light, then we must look to him. We must look at him, right? The solution to it is not just like buckle up and, uh, you know, pull up your bootstraps or whatever it is and, and try to just push through it. The reality is we must look to Jesus. I think of it like... Um, you ever, had, you ever had one of those PowerPoints? I don't know. I think I had it in like Awanus or whatever. Do you guys remember that? Um, where they start off and it's like, this is the size of a human. This is the size of the earth. And then this is the size of the star. And then they just keep going with bigger and bigger, bigger, bigger stars. And you're like, oh my gosh. And they're like, all right, let's bring back the human. And it's like on like an entire screen of a star. You know, it, it would be way bigger than that, right? Um, you, we are kind of small. Uh, we're kind of inconsequential in a way. We're not, but we are. Uh, David describes himself like dust, like a, like a worm. Um, and I think, you know, this has been super helpful for me to process through this idea for me, you know, this week. Because when you think about that, when you look at the glory of God, when you let his light just flood into your soul, then whatever you're worried about seems way less significant. When you think about, man, it's like one day in my entire life, or it's you know, one season, a few years in my entire life, or whatever it may be, and my life's only like 70, 80, 90 years, in light of eternity, this moment is not that big of a deal. And God is still the light in the midst of it. So we're small, and it's helpful when we look at the light. And, and, and it just kind of floods out all that darkness, all the darkness that you were struggling with, it's, it comes in. And I'm not saying it's simple, right? I'm not going to be like, hey, guys, just, just look, and you're, it's done, it's gone. It's not. It's, I, I was still stressed after I wrote that. Um, but it is immensely helpful. It is immensely helpful. So how, how, how do we experience that? How do we look at Jesus as our light? Well, uh, part of it is you and me. Because the reality is God dwells within each and every one of us. We're described as the light of the world. So you and I can actually be the light to one another. We can see Jesus through one another. 
And that can help each and every one of us in the midst of the darkness. That's why I, every time I see someone who puts themselves in isolation, and I do this too, but every time I see themselves in isolation, I'm like, that is the worst. The, and I'm not talking about like solitude where you, you take time to pray. I'm talking about like one who isolates themselves from the church and from the light and from the bride of Christ. That is the worst way to deal with your darkness. We can be beacons of light for one another and to the world around us. But also through God's word. When we, when we read about everything that God has done, when we see what he has uh, accomplished and we see his encouraging words and we read his promises and we, and we just immerse ourselves in that, we experience the light. God is so intentional. He didn't just like, you know, set us off into the world and just say, you know, figure it out. And then we have some vague idea of who God is. No, he gave us his word as a help alongside his spirit. All of these things are to help us in the midst of our darkness because they are a source of light to us. And we pray, right? This is, this is the easiest way in my mind to, to connect these two ideas because when we pray, we're literally like communing with the light. <laughs> we're talking to God who is the light. And so, of course, as that light comes in in the midst of our prayer, it should help with the darkness. It's not so simple, though. I know, I, I know the struggle of prayer sometimes. We're like, oh, I don't really feel like the light is coming in. It is a struggle, and we just have to continue to pursue it and find ways. Because the problem is, I think we can all pretty safely say we're not good at praying. Um, and so the more that we pray, the more that we experience the light of Christ, the more that we immerse ourselves in all of these things, the better off we'll be. And the more likely we will, we will be to get rid of the darkness in our own lives. Um, I forgot to read Matthew 5, so here we go. Uh, Matthew 5, 14 through 16. This is talking about the fact that we are all beacons of light. So, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to, the, to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Again, it just speaks to this idea. We're all the light, and yet we all experience darkness. And so we can all help one another through this struggle until Christ returns. And I love this passage. This might be one of my favorites in Scripture. I think about it a lot. Um, we rejoice because he will put an end to darkness completely. This is what it says in Revelation 21, 22 through 27. And I saw the temple. Oh, I saw no temple. <laughs> I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need for sun, of sun or moon, to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory to it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring, glory, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will enter, ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
Isn't that wild? Like, that, that's like literally our, our destiny. Like, one day this will be true of us. We're going to be sitting in heaven, and God will be our light source. There, there will be no more need for any natural lighting like the sun, the moon, and the stars. There will no, be no more need for any of this. God's glory, his radiance, will literally be our source of light. Darkness will be completely destroyed. And we would just live in the light of Christ for the rest of our lives. Together, bring glory and praise to him. No more pain, no more sorrow, just light. That is a beautiful thing. But it is not the destiny for all, right? There is one way that this is a destiny for some. Let's go ahead and look at uh, the fourth stanza, and we're going to see about this one way. O come, thou king of David, come, and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high, and close the path to misery. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. The world may believe in, like, heaven. They may believe in God. But they probably don't believe that there is only one way. And they probably don't believe it's Jesus Christ. But that is what we know, that there is only one way to heaven. And this is what it's talking about. Um, you know, we plead because, and the rest of the world should be pleading, because there is separation from, from God. And so we need reconciliation. We need, we need some way, because God is perfect, right? And he says, you're not entering into heaven without perfection. So you're like, oh, shoot, that disqualifies everyone, right? And so the only way into heaven is for something to happen, right? And it's not going to be in our own control. And this is what we see um, as a reason to rejoice, because Jesus is the way. He is the mediator. Let's go ahead and, and uh, look at this idea of the key of David. Does anyone actually know what this is talking about, key of David? Um, I didn't either. So once again, isn't this kind of weird um, <laughs> that we keep seeing these things and we're not really sure what they mean? Maybe we have a guess at it, but not really. Um, Isaiah 22, 20 through 22. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and, and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. Who is Eliakim? Um, yeah, I think at first you might be like, I, I don't get it. Um, Understandably so. This, this, is, this is, again, one of those prophecies that has a double meaning. Eliakim is, is actually the, the replacement for Shebna. Shebna was a wicked prime minister, and so Eliakim comes in and replaces it as the prime minister of Hezekiah. But what this means is as a prime minister, he controls all the comings and goings. He, is, he has Tons of authority in this land of Jerusalem. And so whoever wants to enter into Jerusalem and whoever wants to leave, Eliakim has control. He has this authority. So we can pretty easily see, maybe, um, how this could relate. Because we, 
if we look at uh, Revelation 3, 7 through 8, we know, again, that this is not just perhaps about Eliakim. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. This is not talking about Eliakim. Eliakim's long gone. He's dead, and he is not Jesus. This is talking about Jesus. And so this is a beautiful thing, because this is describing Jesus as the key of David. What does that mean? Well, we know that Eliakim had the key of David, right? To, the, to Jerusalem. Jesus has the key to the new Jerusalem, to the new city of David. Those are the same idea, city of David and Jerusalem. So Jesus is the key. He is the only way. He is the gate that the sheep can walk through. He is Jacob's ladder. He is the door. He is the key to the door that no one can open and no one can shut. He alone has control. He alone is the path. He alone is the straight and narrow. There is no way to God except through Jesus, the key of David. You cannot enter into heaven without Jesus. And he accomplished this by his blood. He clothes us in his own righteousness. He purchased us. He paid the ransom. He clothes us so that we can enter in. Not by anything that we could possibly do. There is no work. There's no unquantifiable level of good works and being a good person that will get you into heaven. It is Jesus alone. And all that is required is faith. A genuine faith that leads to genuine repentance and a genuine service to God. But that's it. And of course it makes sense. Because only Jesus, who paid for that and took on that sacrifice and took on our sin and cleansed us of our unrighteousness, could accomplish that. He is the way. So we rejoice because Jesus has made a way by death on the cross. We also rejoice because he continues to be the way to God today. You know, for us, we have a way to connect with God every single day. We're not in heaven yet, but we can still connect with God. This is why, this is why we pray in Jesus' name every time, because you're not going to connect with God if it were not through Jesus. And, and he gives us a spirit, and through the spirit, we're connected to God, and we can actually like experience conviction. We can commune with God. God can commune with us, and we can actually understand his word. And so in so many ways, Jesus continues to be our connection to God, our way to God, our path to him. And so we must rely on him and look to him as that key to God, to the new Jerusalem, to the city of David. And we rejoice because one day he will bring us to this new Jerusalem. This will be our heavenly home. This is what it says in John 14, 1 through 7. Apparently I don't have it, hopefully you do. Oh, I do. Uh, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I would go to prepare a place for you? 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And you know that the way to where I'm going, and you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. For now on, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. So he's prepared this place, and one day he's just going to take us all with him. And all this, all this garbage that we deal with, all this struggle that we, we go through, John, this house with many rooms will be our house. And Jesus will be the key to that house. And he will be the door, and he will be the gate, and he will be literally everything for us. And he asks of us faith. That's it. We talked about a lot of um, reasons to please and a lot of reasons to rejoice. This is not exhaustive. This is literally like five. Um, I would encourage you to, to explore more, to find more. Um, I'm going to provide you one more in, in the final stanza, um, but there is a lot more that we could look at and a lot more reasons to rejoice than the ones I'm giving you today. But let's go ahead and read stanza five and start to bring this to a close. O come, Adonai, Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai's height, in ancient times this give the law, nice, I screwed that one up, in cloud and majesty and awe, rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. Adonai literally just means Lord or ruler. So you could say Adonai about King David, King Saul, whoever is the ruler or, 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 or Lord. Um, so it, it is a general title. Um, this is actually how Jesus is described. Again, everything has a prophecy. In Micah 5.2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So Jesus is our Adonai. He is our ruler. And... Uh, we should be pleading for this ruler uh, because we need a good ruler. It's not really hard to, to see that we need a ruler. We're actually designed to be led, right? We're, we're designed to actually worship God. That was the original intent. Uh, and so, you know, we see this kind of in group projects, group settings, whatever it might be. Eventually, someone leads, right? It's not like everyone's like co-leading all the time. It never works. We know that to be true. Eventually, a leader is appointed, and we as, you know, nations and people always appoint. There's always a king. There's always a president. There's always an emperor. There's always a queen. There's always things. At your, at your job, there's always a boss. There's always a ruler. There's always a leader in our lives. The problem is they're not necessarily good, and they're definitely not good like Jesus is. And, and, and so this is, you know, we, we see this pattern where you have this ruler and then people eventually just get disgruntled with them and like overthrow the ruler or whatever it is and they come in, they take him out and then they appoint another person and they're disappointed with that person and they're like, get rid of him. And, and then the cycle just continues over and over and over and over again because no one is a truly good ruler. But that's what we need. We need to be led as part of our design and again, as I said earlier, we are vulnerable. 
But we rejoice because, again, Jesus is the good ruler. When Jesus came, he completely flipped leadership and ruling on its head, right? He came and he actually cared deeply for his people. He loved his people. He was humble. He was a servant to his people. He was an amazing ruler. This is, what it, this is how he's described in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus came as a good ruler, and this is good news for us because this is the one we serve. And so that is a, a reason to rejoice. And we rejoice because uh, he is still our ruler today. His commands and everything else are something we still abide by. The good thing is he doesn't have commands that are uh, too much or unrealistic or unfair. Maybe your boss does, or maybe you know, your president might, or whoever. But God's rules, God's commands, God's promises are all good. And when he, says, when he promises something as a ruler, he actually fulfills that promise. And he is good on his word. Unlike every other ruler. Every other ruler will fail you to some degree, but Jesus will not. And so today, we continue to serve him. We think of him as our ultimate master, our ultimate ruler in our lives. And so we look to him, and we try to obey his commands today. This, um, this whole stanza is talking about this idea of commands. It's, it's describing the scene on, on Mount Sinai, right, where Israel comes up, and they, God comes in the form of a cloud, and he gives them the Ten Commandments. And then... God leaves, and they're like super terrified, and like, hey, Moses, just you to go talk to him. We don't want to hear, you know, this, this thunderous voice and all this scary stuff and lightning and thunder and everything. Um, and so Moses just goes up by himself. And he's up there for a long time because God is giving them many, many commands and many, many laws. And by the time Moses comes back down, what are they doing? Once again, Israel is like, man, Where's this God? Like, can we even trust this guy? Where's this supposed ruler that we have or whatever? And they said, okay, let's just set up a golden calf instead. Let's just, let's just you know, worship this. Let's serve this instead. And, I mean, to us, it's like, for real? I mean, he, he just came and, like, thundered in front of you, and then you're just going to go, but this is our reality, is it not? We, we have experienced God, too. And yet, somehow, we end up keep making these golden calves over and over again. And this is our struggle. This is our problem. Because we don't trust that he is a good ruler in our lives, but we should, because he's proven it over and over again, both to us and throughout all of Scripture. He's a good ruler. And so for us today, we must lean into that. We must learn to trust that he is a good ruler. We must worship him because he is the only good ruler and we've got to work to stop being idol factories, as people say. Finally, we rejoice because one day he will return as Lord of Lords and triumph over all other rulers. And you and I will get to sprint, sing his praises every day, all day, alongside all the saints and all the other heavenly hosts. This is what it says in Revelation 19, 6 through 7. 
Then I heard what seemed to be, to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roars of many waters and the sound of mighty pearls, peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. He will come again um, and be our ruler, Lord of lords, and there will be no more bad rulers. We alone will serve him. And this is something to rejoice in. There are many reasons to rejoice and many reasons that we need Jesus. And so this is, this is the charge to all of us. Remember I talked about the antiphons, right? You have the call and then the response. So now we respond, right? Now we respond with rejoicing. This is why we have joy throughout the season. This is why we rejoice, rejoice, because Emmanuel has come, is here, and will come again.